the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. I'm so glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we (laughs) typically take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about. We talk about God. We talk about the historical Jesus. We talk about the Bible. We talk about worldviews. We talk about world religions like Islam and Buddhism, like Hinduism and the Tao, like secularism and the New Age. And, of course, we talk about the past, which includes the subject of history, and we talk about the future, which includes the subject of prophecy. And, of course, we often talk about the here and the now. And if you'd like to join me on the program, the number is 303-873-1935, 873-1935. There's lots going on in the news. And I've been obviously reflecting a great deal on what's happening in the Middle East, of course, with the uh, war that's now taking place between Israel and Hamas. And it's pretty um, intense capture of Gaza. But it just reminded me of wars that have taken place in the past. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the Crusades, what some people have called God's War or the Christian Crusades. Now, as you can imagine, the Crusades have generated a great deal of argument, um, including arguments against the Christian faith. Some Islamic terrorists even claim that their terrorist attacks are revenge for what Christians did in the Crusades. So imagine you've got Islamists and terrorists who cite the Crusades as a reason for the ongoing animosity, difficulty, tension, or war. So what were the Crusades, and what should we believe about them? Um, and why are they viewed as such a big problem in the Christian faith? And I think that one of the things we need to to think about is that the Crusades is a vast subject. It's a nuanced subject. It's not a simplistic subject. So um, when we think about the Crusades, are they Christian Crusades? Well, could an argument be made that many of the people who were involved in the Crusades, were they truly Christian? Or did they just simply self-identify as Christians? Now, we know that we live in a world where the name of Christ has been abused and misused and blasphemed by the actions of many people. Was that also true of the Crusaders? Well, you have to remember that the Crusades 
took place approximately between AD 1095 and 1230 AD. Now, again, there was a a prelude to the Crusades, which might find itself from about 900 AD. But all that aside, should the unbiblical actions of supposed Christians almost 2,000 years or almost 1,000 years ago, hundreds of years ago, still be used as an argument to falsify Christian belief. So the other thing is the wars that took place between 1095 and 1230 from a historical standpoint shouldn't serve as an excuse. But again, it goes to the heart of this other question. And the other question is, under what circumstances should people be able to wage war? And the Crusades actually uh, provided at least a mechanism for people to begin to ask and answer the question, under what circumstances does it justify that a group of people can go to war? Augustine, centuries earlier, uh, formulated a, a thing called just war theory, which I'll, which I've touched on in the past, and I might touch on a little bit more. But the Crusades were responses, in part, to Muslim invasions on what was once land occupied primarily by Christians. So, from about AD two hundred to about AD nine hundred the land or the geographical locations that we now know of as Israel and Jordan and Egypt and Syria and Turkey, these lands were primarily inhabited by Christians. Once Islam became powerful, Muslims invaded these lands and they brutally oppressed, enslaved, deported and even murdered Christians living in those lands. Now, that isn't limited to Jordan, Egypt, Syria, and Turkey, but also all of North Africa. But in response to those particular places, the Roman Catholic Church and so-called Christian kings and emperors from Europe ordered the Crusades to reclaim the land the Muslims had taken. And the actions that many so-called Christians took during the Crusades were deplorable. There's no biblical justification for conquering lands, murdering civilians, and destroying cities in the name of Jesus Christ. At the same time, Islam is not a religion that can speak from a position of innocence in these matters as well. Matter of fact, several well-known historians and scholars on the subject would characterize medieval Europe as a kind of warrior elite, but they would say that that was also true of the Muslim-majority countries in the Middle Ages as well. So... To summarize briefly, the Crusades were attempts during the 11th through the 13th century 
to reclaim land in the Middle East that had been conquered by Muslims. The Crusades were brutal and evil. Many people were forced to convert to Christianity. If they refused, they were put to death. Now, again, you have to understand, even the, 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 both the Greek Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church did not subscribe to forced conversion. And the and biblical Christianity does not subscribe to forced conversion. Many of the people who participated in the Crusades, upon when they confessed to killing a pagan or killing a Muslim, they were ordered to they were ordered to participate in 40 days of penance, 40 days of penance, because the people, the person or the people that they had killed were made in the image of God. And so even the Catholic clergy at that time recognized that human beings were made in the image of God and therefore were valuable and important. And so the penance, of course, was because these are people made in the image of God who may have come to faith in Christ. Now, again, not forced conversion. And so, again, we should remind people, do you want to be held accountable for what people did 900 years ago? For people who did not represent your faith? Trying to blame Christianity for the Crusades is pretty inappropriate. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number to call if you want to join me on the air is 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. My producer, Jim, standing by to take your call. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you have a question about God or the historical Jesus. You know, I was talking about... Um, the Crusades, I've been doing a little bit of research and would like to do a little bit more, but um, during the Crusades, it formed a, a kind of a basis that people would think long and hard about what's called just war theory. And Augustine started formulating some of the concepts of what would con- constitute um just war, or how do we have moral principles to guide us that's relevant to warfare? And the goal of the just war theory was to identify what's morally acceptable in a particular conflict. Now, you can imagine in the current conflict, whether we're talking about Russia and Ukraine or Israel and um, Hamas. What's interesting to me is the moral arguments, the outrage. I didn't. I don't see a hundred thousand people showing up in London, Paris, Rome to protest the war in in, in Russia and Iran. Russia and Ukraine. So what is it about this conflict that that generates so much emotion, so much hate, 
so much animosity. So from a Christian standpoint, when we apply biblical ideas in order to try to think about practical standards, the theory of a just war isn't an exclusively Christian idea or understanding. So versions of what constituted a just war were common in Greek civilization and in Roman civilization. However, spirituality strongly influences just how just war theory is going to be applied. Pagan definitions of a just war typically considered expansion and revenge as suitable or acceptable motivations. Some faiths, like Jainism, adhere to a to to an absolute pacifism. Others, such as Islam, were founded by men who frequently waged wars of aggression. And so, biblical Christianity presents an approach to war that I think is significantly more nuanced than that of several other religions. So briefly stated, just war theory says that armed conflict can only take place morally as a last resort. It has to be waged by a legitimate government. That means it has to have a proper authority for, to be considered moral. So the idea is that it has that armed conflict is only moral, A, as a last resort, waged by a legitimate government for moral reasons using moral means. As with most real-world issues, whether or not a particular conflict meets the criteria of a just war is always subject to debate. It's also critically important to distinguish between the concept of a just war and the idea of a holy war. Just war theory doesn't support the concept of waging holy wars, and neither does the Bible. So we might think about that just for a moment. Does the Bible say anything about what you might call a holy war? And the the concept of a holy war is most commonly expressed in a war justified on the grounds of religious differences. So as typically understood, the concept is neither taught nor encouraged in the Bible. The ancient Israelites were never given a broad mandate to wage war on behalf of their faith, though they were given a specific time, place, when they were instructed to conquer the Lord Jesus Christ explicitly contradicts the holy war concept by his teaching and his example. So the concept of just war, meaning a justifiable war waged by a legitimate government, isn't the same as a holy war. So critics sometimes claim that the holy war is encouraged in the Old Testament. But again, the nation of Israel was given a mandate only to conquer the land of Canaan. In Numbers chapter 34, verse 2, where it says, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, that is, the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan 
as defined by its borders. So that's Numbers chapter 34, verse 2. So the command was for a specific place, time, and people. It wasn't an endorsement of religious warfare, nor was the conquest of Canaan made on the basis of religion in and of itself. On the contrary, God repeatedly states that this conquest was due to the wickedness of the Canaanites. And some people forget that. They, they go, well, these poor Canaanites. But again, so pause and just think about this. According to the Bible, the way the Bible frames this discussion, it isn't the merit of Israel, but, but rather the wickedness of the, the Canaanites. Where is that found? In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, where it says, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust you thrust them out before you. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. In other words, here's what he, he's admonishing. Don't think that you're better, and that's why you get to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to you, to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and then it says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Wow. So historically, this is exactly how the nation of Israel interpreted these commands. No attempts were made to conquer other lands, or to expand the territory through combat and subjugation. So Christians are strictly forbidden to use violence in order to spread the faith. Jesus directly told his disciples not to use violence to further his ministry in Matthew chapter 26, verses 52 through 54. And he lived out a philosophy of peacemaking and taught others to do the same in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, where it talks about blessed are the peacemakers. And when arrested and facing death, Jesus clearly said that his kingdom was not earthly, so his disciples would not fight to protect him in John chapter 18, verse 36. So... You want to join me? 303-873-1935. 303 873 I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Marina Medvin at Don Twitter, now, you know, formerly called Twitter, now X, reports that in 2014, 89% of Palestinians supported terrorist attacks on Israelis. 
In 2022, 72% of Palestinians said that Hamas wasn't doing enough terrorism and that they needed to form more terrorist groups. In 2023, 60 of the 240 hostages taken are being held by Palestinian civilians. Let that sink in. 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Arlen, welcome to the program. Hey, hi, Gino. Hi. Hey, uh, I was in some Bible classes with Dr. Bill Watson, and we talked about the Crusades. And then when I was in... Yeah, I know Bill Watson. I mean, I knew him. He's in heaven now, but yeah. Yes. And then when I was in Jerusalem and other parts with your friend and mine, Barry, I came across something, and Bill was the one that really brought it out to me. There was 471 years of the Muslims coming from Mecca and Medina across North and Africa and into Spain before the first crusade was launched. Think of that. Exactly. 471 years of them conquering, raping, murdering, pillaging, and taking over countries. And then finally, the church was, you know, the Europe was a mess. The country, no country was really strong. Nobody knew what to do. But then all of a sudden, they decided to have a crusade. It was bloody. It was awful. But what else? Yeah. I, but 471 years, that's a, that's quite a quite a history right and when you stop and you think about what you just said at the formation of islam and then the presence of christianity in north africa in alexandria in carthage in damascus in antioch and then the utter annihilation of of churches annihilation yeah the utter annihilation and so yeah, um, so so part of the challenge that we we have, and I, I have to admit I have a challenge with this, and I and I've had you know callers call on this, differentiating between Islam and what some have called radical Islam or extreme Islam. So we have to ask and answer the question, you know, what constitutes Islam and what constitutes radical Islam? And I I had a Muslim caller call in, and I asked the question, how many Muslims do you think there are in the world? He said over a billion. And I said, what percentage of that do you think, by your definition, forget about what I say or think on this, but according to your definition, how many of those would you characterize as being extreme? He said 10%. Yeah, Bill said that too. Yep. Now, now, now think about that for just a moment. That's a hundred. I said, so let's do the math. Over a billion, that means over a hundred million. Now, yeah. that's by his definition. Now, again, this is not me sorting through um, the definitions. But then I asked him an even harder question. I said, have you ever felt unsafe around someone who you would characterize as being an extreme Muslim? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Of course we'd be. 
Uh, but 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 think about how chilling that is, where where you go. So this isn't just jihad or death to Christians or death to the Jew, death to America, but death to other Muslims who don't agree with me. And they want complete control over Christians unless you are a dimmy and then you pay their taxes and you're still subservient to them. There's really really a very hard line to be drawn between us coexisting with them. And you notice that when you're in a strictly Muslim country, there's no Christianity. But yet in Christian countries, there are Muslims. Well, I was just, I was in Jordan for the first 11 days of the war, this last war. So on October 7th, I'm in Jordan. And so as I'm in Jordan, I'm talking to my Jordanian guide who was maybe about, I'm going to say, early 50s in his age, I said, when you were born, what was the population of Jordanian Christians? How many Jordanian Christians were there in Jordan when you were born? He said Hmm. about 25%. I said, today, what percentage of Jordanians are Christian? And he he identified as a Christian, by the way. Mm. And he said 2%. He said 2%. And then I asked him, what would you attribute that dramatic decline to? In other words, because I was hoping he would say persecution, but he didn't say persecution. He said generation in the sense of, Muslims are having more babies than we are. Yeah. In other mm-hmm. words, he couldn't connect the dots. Hmm. And the same goes for Lebanon. They used to be an outstanding country, and Christians had freedom in churches. And then as the Muslims took over, it just spiraled out, spiraled out of control. And now you've got a country that's many different factions of all sorts and very few Christians. Right. I mean, I'm thinking back to when I was in school. I mean, by that, I mean college. And I had a, uh, by by the way, my my roommate was from Lebanon. He was from Beirut. Mm. And this is in the 70s, in the mid-70s. And at that time, I'm I'm not I'm trying to remember what the percentages were, and I don't remember what the percentages were, but um, I I'm thinking that it was more than half. But again, according to Worldometer CIA CIA uh, World Factbook, it estimates that in 2012 the the number of christian the so so-called identi- people who identified as christian in 2012 was 40.5% in 2018 that had dropped to 33% mm-hmm. yep. of lebanon's population so yeah there is a um there is a displacement of christians in the middle east huge displacement but the good news in all of this is more Muslims are coming to Christ than ever before in the oh, Middle some East. Of, some of the testimonies I've heard, because I have some missionary friends over there, are amazing. 
amazing how God's speaking to them through different dreams and scriptures that they didn't even know were scriptures. And all of a sudden, there it was. Yeah. And yeah. and they go, wow, this is Jesus? Yeah. In, in the mid-20th century, Lebanon was one of the wealthiest and most prosperous countries in the Middle East. Yep. And Beirut was known as the Paris of the Middle East. And yeah. it was the only state, it was the only state in the Middle East where Christianity was dominant. Now, again, according to the information that, that I'm getting, is it was over 60%. Now, now that's the mid-20th century. That's 1950, shall we say. Here we are, 2023, 30%. Half the population gone. Yeah, it's shocking when you start looking at real statistics. And a lot of people, especially our oppressed, does not want to throw those out there. They want to sweep it under the rug. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Hey, thank you so much for your call. You're welcome, Gino. God bless you. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. I'm wonder, wondering if in my lifetime we might see the collapse of Christianity in the Middle East. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number is 303-873-1935. Someone has asked a question about... The difference between Shia and Sunni Muslims, and I'll get to that question here in just a minute, but I did want to um, bring your attention to an, an article at research.lifeway.com. This is Lifeway Research, and it's found that um, the article states that 100% of churches met in person in August of 2023. But that isn't the case for every churchgoer. It says, but the vast majority are back. We've been talking a little bit about um, the disaster that was COVID, the shutting down of churches all across America, and how that has changed the landscape of how that people go to church, how they go to church, and whether or not they've returned to church. So, uh, according to Aaron Earls at Lifeway Research, uh, almost every church in America has been holding in-person church services. There, but but not every pre-pandemic worshiper has returned. According to the article, it says, "quote The final Lifeway Research tracking data for the U.S. Protestant churches COVID nineteen recovery." finds 100% rounded to the nearest whole number, met in person in August of 2023, capping off a rebound since the early months of the pandemic. It says in March 2020, immediately prior to the widespread COVID-19 outbreak, 99% of congregations held in-person worship services. The next month, only 10% did so. By June 2020, most churches, 70% were physically gathering again. That percentage continued to climb, reaching 87% by September of 2020. There was a brief dip in January 2021, and then almost all churches held in-person services in August of that year. 
and then January 2022, 97%, and then August rounded up, if you will, um, gathered for in-person. And according to Scott McDonald, who's the executive director of LifeWay Research, he said, quote, during the height of the pandemic, churches took very different approaches on whether and how to meet in person. Two years ago, almost all churches that would reopen had done so, unquote. And even though 100% of the churches have returned, that's not the case in the pews. It says, according to this research, the vast majority are back on averages. Churches have seen nine in 10 churchgoers return. But U.S. Protestant pastors report current attendance at 89% of their typical worship service prior to 2020. And um, and in January 2021, 60% gathered. And uh, according to LifeWay, 91% has has returned, leaving this 9% sort of gone. And um, again, there have always been people who have suffered from physical issues um, or what I would call developmental issues. But um, it's interesting how many people have not returned. And according to this LifeWay Research article, it says while most churches declined during the pandemic, some congregations are reporting stability. Others, growth. It says fewer than 1 in 10 churches, that's 8%, said say that their current attendance is less than 50% of what it used to be. And so... Interesting information. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. I've been talking a little bit about just war theory and and um, Sunni and, and Shia. Let me just get to that question real quick. The main difference between Shia and Sunni Islam is their interpretation of the rightful succession of leadership after the death of their prophet Muhammad. So the declaration of faith to which all Muslims assent to is this. And this is, if you say this and you mean it, you could be considered a Muslim. There is no God but Allah, whose prophet is Muhammad. However, the Shiites add an extra phrase at the end, And Ali is the friend of God. Because the Shiites passionately attest to Ali being the successor to Muhammad, a lot of feuding and division has taken place in the world of Islam, not unlike the feuding between the Protestants and the Catholics in Europe during the Reformation. However, the schism that sets up the major sects of Islam is not according to doctrinal issues like Protestants and Catholics. So you would be wrong if you think, do Shia and Sunni have theological differences? And although there are certain nuanced differences uh, among Islam, there isn't a profound doctrinal division. This is 
a political di- di- division based on the identity of the true successor to Muhammad. So among the close disciples of Muhammad was a man named Ali, his son-in-law, who was most familiar with his teachings. However, when Muhammad died in AD 632, the followers bypassed Ali, whom the Shiites claim is the rightful successor to Muhammad, instead a cousin of Muhammad's third successor, Uthman, called Muawiyah Umayyad, declared himself caliph. When he died in AD 680, his son Yazid usurped the caliphate instead of Ali's youngest son, Hussein. The feud between the rightful successors or caliphs was fought at a battle called Karbala. Hussein was slain. I know, it sounds like a poem. Hussein was slain, but his sole son, Ali, survived and continued the line of succession. Yazid, however, gave rise to the Umayyad line of succession from which modern-day Sunnism arose. So, as for their beliefs, both Sunni and Shia Muslims agree on what's called the five pillars of Islam. And the five pillars of Islam are an important part of Islam. So while the Sunnis honor Ali, they do not venerate their imams as having the gift of divine intercession. Shiites do venerate their imams, believing that they're endowed with what's with infallibility in their interpretation of the Quran. And so in that way, it sort of mirrors or follows what Roman Catholics believe about the Pope. He is honored, venerated, if you will. So Sunnites conduct community prayers and believe that they can have a direct relationship with God. Both Shiite Muslims and Sunni Muslims are involved in terrorism. So if you say, well, are is one, do 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 both participate in terrorism? Yeah. Shiite groups would include Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Sunni groups would in, include Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Taliban in Afghanistan and Boko Haram in Africa. So, there you have it. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. I'll be back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.